0: This is the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition with Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Weekends with Walshi starts now. Yes, hello, welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. This week, it's called Weekends with Woody. My name is Peter Gowers. I hope you've had a great week thus far. Let's get to the MT Independent online newspaper now and chat with David Wood. Woody, how are you, mate? Good, peace. How are you? I am very well. It's nice to see you. It's nice for the double conversation this week, I've got to say.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm Cinderella this week, so I'm staying here in Darwin while Chris is off gallivanting across the nation.
0: Understandable, and we appreciate you being here and available for us while things are happening around the nation of, uh, you know, prominence that Chris is attending, gala awards and all sorts of things. We'll do the hard yards back at home. (laughs) It's what happens all the time. Mate, it's another big week in news, and uh, look, there's lots to talk about as we got into on News Bites, but since then, another story's popped up, and uh, it's not a good one as far as the aspirations of the NT government are concerned, because the NT econ- NT's economy sorry, has suffered the largest drop in the nation, and all- also the largest drop in disposable income, according to reports.
1: That is correct, Pete. and. These figures that we're talking about come from uh, an NT Treasury and Finance Department economic brief report that was released this week. Now, that data is based on Australian Bureau of Statistics information, and it showed that in the last financial year, that's 2022 to 2023, the territory's gross state product um, reduced by 5.3%, putting us at a, an economy size of $30.1 billion so the gross state product is basically the the territory's equivalent of uh, gdp so it takes in on yeah. um, expenditure production and income um, it why it's particularly significant is obviously that the government has made their am, what they call their ambitious aim of having a 40 billion dollar economy by 2030 and this um this does not all go well for that having said that the economy uh, expanded by five point one percent last year. Now the economists are saying a large region for region reason for this is the decline in the export of and production of gas, which um was the biggest impact on this. And to put it in context where the territory sits with this figure, Tasmania was the next worst performing jurisdiction and it had an increase in its GSP of 1.1%, and the best performing was the ACT at 4.3%, with the Australian average at uh, 3%. And you're right, the the territory's disposable income had the largest drop in the nation. Um, the disposable income per capita, which decreased by 4.7%, to 122,000, is the um, average disposable income per capita in the territory. So it was the weakest result, but it still puts us as the second highest disposable income um, in the country out of all the jurisdictions. So Mm. we've gone down, but we're still better than than other places.
0: Yeah, but as you say, it doesn't augur well, and we're 2023, soon to head into 2024, with this massive sort of undertaking that the government's constantly banging on about. And, you know, just six years out, we're going backwards.
1: Yeah, that's right. Now, earlier in the year, we'd reported the Deloitte Access Economics report had predicted that the economy would decrease by four point one percent last financial year, and obviously it ended up decreasing by five point three percent. And over the five years to two thousand twenty-seven, the um, economy was only expected to grow at an ad- average rate of one point one percent, which would be the weakest growth rate of all the states. So um that flies in the face of uh, the the government's you know aim of getting that economy to, to that size. Now Deloitte said at the time that the territory's economic growth was subject to substantial uncertainty around international goods exports, and that's what we found, largely related to LNG with international trade taking over and business investment as projects transition from construction to production and the government certainly benefits, especially from the, the construction phase of those projects. Uh, I spoke to uh, CDU academic Professor Rolf Gerritsen, who is a man who's been in the Northern Territory for a long time and knows a lot of things and is happy to give an independent commentary on what's going on in the Territory. Now, Treasurer Eva Lawler didn't answer our questions, of course, because, um, well... Because, hmm. but she told September. the NT News. <laughs> yeah, she told the NT News that the growth was in line with the forecast of the 2023 budget, and and those forecasts would be updated in the the mid year budget, which is going to come out later this month. Now, she said it was the Icathus plant uh, as the Icathus plant returned to regular levels. So that's the impacts plant. The NT's economy is expected to rebound strongly next year. She seems to be the only one predicting that, and. I think uh, it was noteworthy that Gerritsen pointed to the reduction in gas production from the Blacktip gas field as the reason for the decrease. Now, that's um, the field southwest of Darwin, which is supposedly supposed to, supposedly supplies Darwin with gas for electricity. But um, the power and water has had to go into emergency supply agreements with the two LNG plants in Darwin because of the lack of production of gas out of the black tip. So it's very interesting that um, that, you know, threat to Darwin's electricity supply or, you know, the fact that they've had to go into emergency supply and the Treasurer didn't mention that version I found uh, telling. It's often what people don't say that is the most interesting thing. Now, Garrickson also Gerritsen also said that the government would be hoping that Santos's Barossa gas export project would go ahead. Um, but if Santos walked away, the territory would be in a bit of trouble. Now, there's been more than a year's worth of trouble for Santos with his project, with in they're currently facing a junction on laying a large section of the pipe until at least mid January, because there's uh, some traditional owners on the Tewi Islands have argued that um, they need to do a new environmental um assessment to be approved by the actual authority that approves such things. Now a judge is actually making a decision on that and has put a temporary injunction because that pipe that will take the gas, which is a very um high carbon level gas from memory, will go within about seven kilometers of the TWE Islands. And they're arguing, some TOs at least are arguing that it's it's sacred area. So the government the the company's always said Kept to their timeline, saying we're going to be producing gas by 2025. But it's certainly um, their inability to to go go ahead with um, trying to establish that production has is, has been really significant. Now, the other thing is that Gerritsen said some. I think some really telling things in that he said the government would need to pursue fracking in the Beetaloo Basin. To, to basically bolster the economy. Now, oil and gas companies, as you know, are expected to begin sitting, submitting production applications for approval next year, and and um, Tambourine have already started doing some sort of um, drilling out there, exploratory drilling, and I think from memory they were expecting to start gas production there next year. Now, the government controversially approved fracking this year despite its like own report revealing it, it hadn't commenced Emissions offset discussions with the federal government, and also that its own independent oversight officer—that the person that brought in to make sure that they implemented all the recommendations of the Pepper Inquiry, which they said they would—so the government had not met the Pepper Inquiry offset recommendations and emissions, but and which provided an unacceptable risk. But Garrickson um, says this is an important project. The government, the government obviously certainly treated it that it was such an important project that they would um, go through regardless of their own uh, overseeing, saying they hadn't actually implemented one of the very important recommendations. Um, but the, the other thing Garrettson said, he said, I think the government has worked out the future is grim unless we do one of two things. One is to slash the public service in half, or at least reduce it. But there is probably about 40,000 votes in the northern suburbs of Darwin related to the public service. They need to reduce the public service for the territory's long-term viability, but a wholesale sacking would destroy domestic demand in Darwin. The other thing he said, and the second thing is to pump up the economy. I think it puts more pressure on the NT government to frack the Beeloo Basin, and we'll see, and they want to get the construction phase happening before the next election, which is less than a year year away.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I read that comment, uh, particularly about reducing the public service, and I couldn't help but think that age-old adage that we must hear three times a week, and that is the definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different result. And while yes. the NT government still keep piling on public servants, what do you think's going to happen?
1: I think you can remember back a few weeks ago when I'd written a story about how the number of public servants in the Territory had actually increased despite the promises of two caps. And... Um, And obviously, the government is still employing people. But when I asked the CLP for a statement about it going, you know, are you critical of the government for continuing to employ and creating this, like, structural problem for the NT's economy? And they provided a response that didn't even mention the two words public servants at all. So, obviously, (laughs) you know, it's too close to an accident for them to to get excited about that. But there was another thing that Gerritsen said, which was interesting, because we, we talk about this sort of fanciful $40 billion. Um, economy, and he said the GST next year is going to go down because, the, because of the interest rate rises. But he also said a $40 billion economy by 2030 was possible if it was considered in real dollars, but impossible if it was adjusted for inflation. So is it one thing to talk about, you know, the size of the economy you want to get to? He said it's possible to we'll get there, but we won't be any richer for it because of, um, it was That's achieved so through inflation.
0: Mm. I actually thought he was going to say it's imp- it's possible if we're talking about real dollars, but not monopoly dollars.
1: <laughs> Dollar redos. <laughs> the territory should get its own uh, currency, and we can become a absolutely. banana republic. Yeah, well, we
0: could just do what FTX did and just create our own cryptocurrency and issue that against things that we borrow from or whatever, and it's got absolutely no value whatsoever. What what they do is they they produce like a billion cryptos, and then they say. Hey, Dave, will you buy one for a dollar? And you go, yeah, I'll buy one for a dollar. Oh, our currency is now valued at a billion dollars. <laughs> That's how it works. I think
1: work. the, the NT News did strike a Michael Gunner coin once, I think, remember? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that should be the coin. I, 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 I don't
0: know whether we called
1: it a Gunner or not.
0: But. Yeah, did they indeed? What a classic. Oh, I guess we'll be hearing more about that, Dave. Um, yeah. Yeah. Moving to the next story, uh, this is one we've been waiting on for a while now. I'm going to read you the actual headline, and then I'm going to read you how I read it until I then reread it and went, oh, hang on. So, Coroner Elizabeth Armitage will not recuse herself from the Walker inquest is the actual headline, and I read it as, Coroner Elizabeth Armitage will not rescue herself from the Walker (laughs) inquest. You read it however you like.
1: (laughs) Uh, It might mean the same thing. <laughs> um. So yes, the coroner Elizabeth Armitage ruled this week that she wasn't going to recruit herself from presiding over the the coronial inquest into the death of Kumanjaya Walker. Now, to refresh everyone's memories, Mr. Walker was was killed in November two thousand nineteen after being shot three times by then Constable Zach Rolfe during a bungled arrest in Yondamu as part of the immediate response team, which is sort of like a, a dulled-down version of the tactical response team you might be more familiar with. Now, he, uh, Walker had stabbed uh, Rolf with medical scissors in the sh- shoulder during this, the scuffle, but um, in t- May 2022, Rolf was found not guilty of murder by a jury, also found him not guilty of the two alternative charges of manslaughter engaging in violent contact causing death. Now, the coronial inquiry has been going on since September 5 last year. It hasn't been running the whole time because there's been various, uh, there's been legal challenges. Rolf um, and another officer tried to avoid having to give evidence. And there's also the thing that they seem to do where they just take the the wet season off, as we've discussed before. Mm -hmm, Um, But so in early October Zach Rolf's lawyers filed an application calling on the coroner to recuse herself from the inquest on the grounds of apprehended bias and he was also seeking materials relating to a non-publication order on the Spotlight News television program or current affairs program and materials relevant to the coroner's visit to de Damu. Now, Armitage had to um, set aside or vacate Four days of the actual coronial hearing that was going to happen from October twenty-three to twenty-seventh, while she was making this weighty decision, it also <clears throat> coincidentally happened to be the time that uh, Rolf and another officer, Lee Bowens, were going to give evidence. After Rolf had lost his uh, appeal against giving evidence, because he was fighting against um, the idea that that he would face civil action. If he gave evidence, such as police discipline, disciplinary matters. Now, specifically, Armitage was accused of withholding full recordings of her coronial visit to Yondamu last year and hiding correspondence from parties to the inquest, while her counsel assisting Peggy Dwyer was accused of colluding with the NT police executive to get Mr. Rolfe disciplined and fired. And she also implemented a gag order that prevented the media from reporting the allegations in that application before she addressed the substance of the allegations, which was met with criticism, criticism by some parties at the inquest as an attempt to shield herself from security for the weekend. And boys um, also argued that she should have heard arguments before invoking the interim publication ban on the details of the recusal, recusal application, which some argued was further evidence of apprehended bias, which, of course, she didn't find. Now there was another Bowens and a few other police also joined the application for recusal later, and um, much of their uh, argument, their arguments, was substantially the same. In her sixty-two page ruling, um, she mentioned that she was making a decision on the recusal only because Rolford asked for it to be done in that order, and not a decision on the production of the documents will come later. Now, essentially, it boiled down to the fact that she uh, she decided that she was not persuaded that a fair-minded lay observer might reasonably uh, apprehend that, that I might not bring impartial mind to the resolution of the issues arising under the Act. So, Pete, you can imagine that uh, that use of fair-minded um, got people on Facebook um, quite agitated. And um, yes. some dis- some disagreed with her. Now, she specifically said Rolf had not identified any statement by me in the transcript or the written ruling that showed a bias against him. And furthermore, his submissions overlooked the care taken to ensure that the process was fair to him. Now, curiously, she also goes on to say that more than one interested party was critical of Rolf bringing the application just before he had to you know recommence at the inquest and give evidence that it meant that it would um, drag on for longer, and that the um, and the, that uh, they're also critical of the fact that Rolf was making complaints about the cons- the concerned matters that happened a long time ago, if you know what I mean. so things that happened three hundred and twenty five days ago, he suddenly uh, they're saying he suddenly just decided um he was offended by or thought they represented apprehensive apprehended bias. Against him, in his defence, he said, "Well, one of these things actually happened on August 29th this year, and and because of the the um the court case, his appeal that was going on, that he said, you know, essentially he couldn't get it done a lot earlier." Now, uh, Armitage said she um, she thought that it meant that um, some of the more serious things that he was accusing of her. Of apprehended bias couldn't have in totality um, been apprehended bias because because Rolf waited until this thing that happened in August 29 as the final nail that said oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. So that was all very interesting. Um, I you know Rolf has the opportunity to to appeal this decision, and uh, we haven't had any word on his decision on doing that yet. So we'll have to wait. Now, if if he didn't take the appeal, the decision, this um this coronial is not due until to start again until to the end of February. I think it's only supposed to go for a short time. It's only I think it's only him, Rolf, and the other officer to go. And maybe there's going to be there was gonna, there was going to be something else, but I'm not quite sure. Anyway. It's still going to be a long time before the coroner hands down her findings no doubt even if it's uh, even if it isn't delayed by more court action.
0: Yeah, and look from a an interested observer's perspective Dave, it just seems so messy. The whole thing just seems so messy.
1: Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see when we get to the end of it, the whole point is to understand why he was shot and killed. Mm. And to t- to find out the reasons that led to that and say so that that sort of stuff doesn't happen again, that, you know, yeah. we're dealing in a system that um, doesn't lead to that sort of stuff. It, you know, some of the, the, the direction that Coronial has gone in, which seems to focus on more uh, racism uh, through text messages and the like, where it seems a lot of the, the people who are higher up in that hierarchy, who were uh, the people who... Put the IRT out there without understanding the rules, whether what they're doing, and the actual officer Eun Mu who didn't k- take control of the whole process. There's so many facets of this that um, seem to go towards leading up to the fact that that man was killed on that day. Um, yep. Whether we get to the point of fully understanding that, I hope so, because it seems because Chris and I have obviously done a lot of work reading the Proctor and Pollock report about what went wrong, all seven versions of it, I might say. Um, there's a lot of things that you just, even as a layperson, you think, like, you're, I mean, a layperson can understand it because Proctor was, like, heavily critical of a lot of things that went on there that didn't seem to attract the attention or warrant uh, in the coronial, didn't seem to attract as much attention or weight as the racist text messages did so I guess it's yep. it's way too early to judge, of course, but um, having watched it from the sidelines, that's it's like the gist or the feel mm-hmm. of what's been going on.
0: Yeah, well, hopefully we do get to the bottom of it, as you say, that it uh, sets up a situation where nothing like that can happen again in the future.
1: Well, I'm sure the um, police's um, lawyer is probably now going to um, try and hold me in contempt of court as well.
0: Well, let's hope not, Dave. Um. Let's, let's move to the next story now, and uh, I felt like I might have been uh, reading an article from a few years ago when I read this next story, um, although there was one key difference. When uh, the Chief Minister flees a press conference amid a growing shares scandal, but on this occasion, and I should caution for the future, if you're going to flee a press conference, make sure you've got all your staff with you, <laughs> because on this occasion, there was a Poor lass left on the side of the road, forgotten about, and dis- uh, and completely, she was just left to get her own way back to the office. I believe.
1: Yeah. Well, someone please think of the press secretaries. Uh, yeah, this is a <laughs> where you need to fire up your flux capacitor uh, several times because we go back in time twice in this story. So, um, earlier earlier this week, when was it Wednesday? Christopher Walsh turned up to a press conference of uh, that the Chief Minister was holding Crazy. and um, as you all would well know that the government has an illegal ban on the NT independent which contravenes their actual their code of conduct which is actually a, an act of parliament as well which says that they have to um, be open to the media essentially. Now, Chris, on two separate occasions, the company that was hosting the uh, media event. Two people individually <laughs> came up and tried to dissuade Chris Walsh from from being there. And uh, if anyone knows Chris Walsh very well, it's a really, <laughs> stupid, it's a really <laughs> stupid thing to do. It's a very stupid thing to do. Anyway, some of our the media colleagues started filming, it and those people gave up. And I think from uh, the description Chris gave me, like well, Walsh, like shrugged her shoulders and resigned herself to the fact of having to be in the vicinity of someone as vile as Chris Walsh. And she got up there and gave a little speech, and I think she did a little bit of a golden shovel. What do they call that when you do the first?
0: Oh, they break the first ground? Turn the first sod?
1: Yeah, that's right. Some sort of Mm. sodding action. And uh, anyway, she got all that out of the way, and then, like, she just got her skates on, and she um, bolted before, it wouldn't take questions, just ran away. and unfortunately, her Pearl press secretary uh, was left. It's just like collateral damage to the whole thing and was left um, standing on the side of the road in the, the baking build-up top-end sun, just wondering where, um, why she worked so hard for a person that would uh, leave her with the uh, dreaded enemy on the side of the road. But I, know I can't sum it up as well as Chris wrote it. But so <laughs> I'll read that out again because uh, there was a particular level of Canadian um, flair here, she took no questions and later fled the scene, leaving her advisor, Jasmine Roussos, standing in the road as the white
0: Lexus SUV peeled away before she could open the door. I um, I feel like there was a scene where she tried to open it and it got flung out of her hand as the car sped off.
1: I like to picture it like she opened the door and Files was in the back seat, and she opened the door, and then Files like just fucking <laughs> pushed it, didn't kicked <laughs> her out of the way, and then they just sped off with the door open as they went down the road. Sounds like yeah. a movie scene, but apparently yeah. I'm told Chris told me that Channel Nine captured the cameraman captured it beautifully, like framed you know captured the moment that uh, the press secretary realised that she'd just been you know um. Physically and emotionally abandoned by her boss, yeah. and standing on the middle of the road, and then pan the camera to watching Chris focusing on Chris going, oh, "I don't know." Like, but, did it um, make news on Channel Nine? Hopefully, it did. Uh, I'm told it didn't. Um, right. It made it made a few paths at the bottom of an NT news story. Yeah,
0: and I, I could Was be that for fear of retribution, Dave. Do you know? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I, I'd hate to think about why this is because can't, can't confirm well, or deny.
1: Well, it just makes me sad in my heart to even think about it. And I, I could be wrong, but I don't think the ABC reported on it at all. So um, right. Uh, so if you get to a point where a chief minister runs away from a journalist, yep, and it's not a news story in a town, I don't
0: know. Mm. There's,
1: there's, there's where have you got
0: to him. in your life? Hmm. Yeah, it makes total sense. It's, but I did um, read
1: a I did read about it on a, a blog called the NC Independent.
0: Right. Not not a hate page? <laughs> no. Formerly a hate page, now we yeah. really class it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've really turned it around since multi award winning and award nominations and all sorts of things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Knighthoods, mm. all the all, all the <laughs> <palover>. <laughs> Yeah. I'm well, going I mean, to um I'm going to reject
0: my knighthood just for the record. Fair call. I would too if I was you. Um, I feel like uh, it. Yeah, it's just got to the stage of ridiculousness. If you remember that show, Ridiculousness, it's just like, what is going on? Have we really got to the point where one angry Canadian makes the leader of a free state or territory just hit the road and abandon their media staff? <laughs> well, apparently it is. These are scripts yeah. you cannot write. 169 shares is all it takes, as well. I hear. I would like to. Um,
1: I would like to have got in the mind of Jasmine and the resources that all happened. Anyway, I said you needed the Flux capacitor a couple of times. So, yes. um, this takes us back to when the NT independence started in about 2020, and Chris and I rocked up to the Stugs Hill Walks, the then Chief Minister Michael Gunner was holding a press conference, and. Um, there was movement in the station as the word passed around, and um, as they say in the classic Australian poetry, and the gunner, little Lexus, did a did a loop the loop, and I think the tourism minister was there as well, and then they bolted off because one of the the press secretary that was already there, um, rang up to dob um, that the NT Independent was there, and I think from memory she even told us we weren't allowed to be there, and we were standing on a public public wharf and she's there Pretty going no, the you're wharf. not you're not allowed to be here and then, yeah okay that's great mm-hmm. anyway so they they changed the press conference back to moved it to parliament house and we were allowed in parliament house as i said the other day but we just weren't allowed in the room where they're holding the press conference and that sparked a, a hoo-ha and made it onto media watch and um mm. and there was a bit bit of reporting and to to cons- it's unfathomable that that happened to begin with. The cheapness of literally run away, and now it, from a journalist, and now it has happened twice. Yeah. But also, more importantly, the, part of the reason why Files doesn't want to speak to Chris Walsh is the uh, the uh, turmoil, the hoo-ha over the shares that she has in the uh, now is trying to sell in Woodside, and the fact that she's breached the ministerial code of conduct for um, for having shares in a company like that. When she has influence. Now, this also this takes us back to, I don't know. I like to think of it as the golden years, the glory days of <laughs> the
0: Northern Territory. With the well, it's the it's the pre golden years, isn't it? Because <laughs> these will be the golden years in a few years.
1: time. Uh, you know, their, their shenanigans were a lot more fun. I think the CLP yeah. they that a particular good old boys way of Screwing up, I think. Born to rule way. <laughs> so we have to go back to 2016 when and then, I presume, I think he was Agriculture Minister Willem Wester Van Holfer, who also had an awesome name, um, when his alleged attempts to purchase shares in the Vietnamese dragon fruit company with a, with a company that he was actually dealing with as a minister over um approvals to... I don't know, they wanted to start a dragon fruit farm here. Now mm. he resigned over the matter because you know he broke the ministerial code of conduct. And you go back to the the then Labor opposition asked Parliament in 2016 as this was happening, what is the point of a code of conduct when you see behaviour like this go completely undisciplined by a COP government and chief minister? Uh, Wester Van Holther resigned three days later while also stating he'd done nothing wrong, but said he was resigning as Deputy Chief Minister to avoid distraction of being government business, which is similar to, um, you know, Files has said she's done nothing wrong and she was getting rid of her shares to, to get rid of the distraction. But, but at least something happened in that instance. Yeah. And what is the point of having a code of conduct if it's something that you you trip over and um,
0: just just ignore? Amazingly prophetic words that only uh, seven years later would come back to bite them on the bum. Yes. While in so, former Labour and current independent MLA Mark
1: Turner had said this week that uh, Mr Van Hulth's, um behaviour should, or his actions, should provide guidance to the current Chief Minister while calling for Labour's cabinet to properly address her breach to preserve the integrity of Parliament. Now, <laughs> Many would say the integrative parliament's already been uh, trashed after we, we talk about the last government as well. Uh, but it's a nice idea, and uh, she should. That those all those people now, because of um, the situation, files did what she did, and the fact that those the, their cabinet rules there exist, and now because each of them have not acted, like, they all become complicit in it really because of their lack of their their inability to take action or their lack of want to take action and, you know, it's to the detriment of their own perceived integrity as well that they mm. refuse to do anything or at least uh, are seen to not be doing anything.
0: Yeah, it really is. It seems now that we've got to the point of, look, there's really no boundaries that you can't push or break or jump over and at the same time, there's no consequences um and you know i know there'll be some people outraged by what i'm about to say but this is not just a northern territory thing this is actually an issue nationally both at federal level and in multiple states where the opposition is so impotent that they can't force the government to uh, you know Change their ways in these sorts of regards because they just don't have the strength to do it themselves. And something you touched on earlier when you were saying you asked the uh, opposition for comment regarding the public service numbers. Oh God, they won't touch that. Remember last time at the the um, chief minister's debate, it was uh, oh well no we we wouldn't touch the public service despite knowing that's the only thing really that we can do that will effectively. Cut the excessive spending that the territory suffers from, but she running up to an election. We couldn't possibly say that because there's massive percentage of the voting public that we can't possibly get.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> there's certainly uh, steering clear of this shares debacle as well,
0: <laughs> right?
1: So, um, and there'll be more on that. There's a reason why they yeah, may not yeah. be wanting to talk about that. But mm. uh, be- before we leave this, it would be uh, remiss of me if I didn't share this, which was a little. Hard Easter egg at, yes, at the bottom of uh, Chris's story about the uh, the files uh, fleeing. It said, it was unclear if Miss Roussos was forced to walk back to Parliament House on Wednesday morning.
0: <laughs> fair call. You would need a change of clothes if you did, even though it was only in the city of McMinn Street. Still in that weather. It's a, yeah. a fair hike this time of year. And you got to walk up a slight hill as well. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And and plus, it gets you a bit hotter with that anger on your face the whole time <laughs> you're marching back. I wonder if she was thinking on the way back, as she baked in the sun,
1: thinking, think of all the things I do for this woman. Mm. Like, I'll work like a dog for her, and mm. she, at the first moment, she bolted and left yeah. me standing here. Yeah. I, I, I guess, uh, happiness wouldn't be the thing that you'd be experiencing right in that moment. And I don't think a great love for your employer either would be necessarily no. what you were feeling on them.
0: No, I mean, to be honest, it's it's a pretty disgraceful act, really. If you're going to bolt from the scene, bolt from the scene. If you've got some, you know, reason why you think you need to, but make sure you've got all your staff with you. If you brought them down, take them back. Have the decency.
1: Yeah, I'd like to see Russos doing that Terminator manoeuvre where, you know, <laughs> she just like hooked onto the back of the car and dragged herself up like that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> smashes the back window and gets in. <laughs> yeah, oh, i would uh, Yeah. Dave, oh. talking uh, about um, the next story, this is one that we're going to be talking about for a while because it's yet to go to court in proper, but the uh, chopper that's owned by Matt Wright, Probably crashed because it ran out of fuel. Uh, with conflicting accounts of whether it refueled or not, uh, according to the ATSB, I think I've got that acronym right.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have to. I have to be reading it to understand to remember what it is. It's just one of those, uh, you know, Big Brother type bureaucracy uh, terms, isn't it? Uh, their findings would almost be something t- to t- to make light of them perhaps if someone hadn't died in this crash. But you're right, the uh, Australian Transport Safety Bureau, some 113-page report, was released today. They've been investigating this since February 28th last year, and there's been many, many, they've, they've extended it, the deadline or the release date at least two or three times from memory. They, uh, they found that the helicopter probably crashed because it ran out of fuel mid-flight, but also said maintenance non-compliance also increased the risk level. So much of the company's flying and engine defects likely offended, affected the chopper's fuel consumption. Now, the word probably has sparked something here, and the finding itself um, has sparked stuff, uh, conversation in the media from those involved as. Um, I, I, I guess people were very surprised at that finding. And as you said, there are, there are, there are other legal uh, actions or being undertaken at the minute in that there's charges for three people involved um, to do with, in part, the cover-up, uh, the alleged tampering of, um, of evidence after the crash. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. But I will say on the, uh, off the bat that all the all three men who have been charged, which is Matt Wright himself, along with um police ex police officer Neil Mallon, as well as um helicopter pilot Michael Burbage, who was not actually part of the egg collection crocodile egg collection jaunt that ended the, uh, led to the crash, they've all uh, all maintaining their innocence and in fighting the charges. Anyway, during a uh, a egg collection mission last year in february uh, three helicopters three um, robinson r44 helicopters left darwin on their way to the king river region of west arnhem land now um unfortunately in that region uh 34 year old chris wilson who died after the helicopter crashed now he was a co-star with Matt Wright in Wild Croc territory, which is on Netflix at the minute. And he was also a star of Outback Wrangler with him as well. Now, um, the 30 year old pilot and aircraft engineer, Sebastian Robinson, also suffered severe spinal injuries in the crash. Now, so as we said, the ATSB said the helicopter engines stopped mid flight, probably due to running out of fuel. And during the subsequent auto rotation emergency and forced landing procedures, uh, Robinson released the hooks in the sling line carrying Wilson beneath the helicopter. Now, as I, I said in the, the other news bites, the Australian was using the word likely, that likely ran out of fuel and then gave a technical definition of um, what likely meant. Um, I I came across the word probably, that's the word they used that I saw as well, but um but that's the so that's the word that I went with. Um, if you want to go and read the Australians' version of it, it's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. So, the they the ATSB made the finding that they didn't think the helicopter had been refilled. Now there was drums of fuel, you know, halfway along the route where all the helicopters definitely stopped to be refueled. Now. In a quote from the report, it said, based on analysis of fuel samples and other evidence, the ATSB investigation found that the helicopter was likely not refueled. I guess that's where the word likely comes in. At a fuel depot about three quarters away between Darwin and the Crocodile collecting area. And the pilot did not identify the, the reducing fuel state. He didn't notice it was running out of fuel and that it actually stopped and then crashed. Now also there was other aspects to this as well. It so said the egg egg collection was um Wilson was dropped from a height that uh, would not have been survivable from and they also called into question the actual uh health and safety uh parameters they had around their egg collection and also questioned Cass's role in that because they'd um they'd approved the method of collecting eggs in that way. So um Now, one of the tricky things, if you read the report, said that all three helicopters landed at that refuelling site, but there was no record of fuel, how much fuel was put in the helicopters. And it said those president Borodar reported that the helicopters were hot refuelled. No idea what that means. The accident pilot reported that they're… I can tell you. Okay, go.
0: Refuel without switching them off. There you go. Yeah, I don't know why you would or wouldn't do that. Some people do that with cars, if you can believe it.
1: Yeah, I like to hot refuel from time to time. But, um, <laughs> Run the risk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, it sounds much better than it really is in real life. So it said Robertson, the pilot, reported that an all action was to always fill the helicopter to full at Mount Borodale, but it, that he couldn't confidently recall the refueling events there but the two other members of the mission reported that pump from their helicopter was used by him to put fuel in the main tank of the, his helicopter. But a submission following the review of the draft report included a statement made in April this year by one of those men who now said they had not seen it being refuelled. Now, another witness said they they went to hold the hose for Robinson, who was getting ready to refuel the helicopter, But in a subsequent statement in September this year, said that they observed the egg collector partially fueling before they took over and personally filled it to the brim. Um, So there's no like like, there is the explanation that that they did fuel testing samples and that uh, it seemed that the fuel in the helicopter didn't match the fuel that was at Mount Moradal. it doesn't explain why, how it was possible that that helicopter didn't get filled up um, or why the account, mm. and I guess I said why the account of that chopper being refuelled was found not likely to be f- true, but that comes down to fuel tests as well. Another thing is that they said that um, Robinson had traces of a cocaine in his system, which... Uh, from the way they explained it, it would have been detectable. It wasn't in his blood sample. It was some other method, and it, it should have been in his system for up to four days before he was tested. Um, so, yeah. And then they go on to talk about um, – they say there was not assessed as oh, there's the evidence having – saying the ATSB said this wasn't assessed as causing the accident, but – uh, Matt Rides company's history of non-compliance with requirements maintenance standards and accurate record keeping increased the risk level for much of their flying and um and it said although not likely to result in sudden power loss engine defects in that helicopter at the time of the accident likely affected its maximum power output and fuel consumption
0: yeah that's a concern isn't it so the uh, the the fuel gauge may have been telling you one thing, but the actual consumption could have been at an increased level from what it should have been for that particular engine.
1: Yeah. There's also details in this story, um, sorry, in the report that aren't in the story, which is like there was an emergency, basically locator beacon that wasn't attached, it wasn't operating in the helicopter, it wasn't in there that would have alerted um, the fact that the helicopter crashed much earlier than it did, and it said that, Sebastian Robinson's injuries could have been minimized or lessened if they had a found him earlier. Um they also said that um, I'm not sure of the exact term, but basically the, the hour meter records how many the engine hours wasn't connected up properly either. So a lot of the maintenance right. the maintenance, um it was like they're unsure about whether enough maintenance had been done because like it wasn't really it wasn't routinely hooked up to to actually measure right how much the helicopter is flying. Like if you're very interested in this story, there's a lot of detail in that report people might find very interesting. Mm. It takes it takes it even further than this. Sounds um, like one and, of the
0: cars they used to sell in the seventies, Dave, where they used to spin the miles back on the Regio to make it uh you know, it's only only been to only been to church and back on Sunday. Yeah,
1: I tell you what, if my like if my L C Tirana had the, had a rotor and it could have been like a Tirana helicopter, that would have been that <laughs> would have been real living. Um, as I as I mentioned before, there's some very serious charges um, mm. that these men are, are facing, and there's been some court action hearings so far. Now, Wright himself is accused of perverting the course of justice and destruction of evidence, and he's also facing charges of fabricating evidence, interfering with witnesses, making a false declaration. Two counts of unlawfully entry after a helicopter crash. After the helicopter crash. Now, the former acting senior sergeant Neil Mellon was arrested when he arrived for work in August last year and charged with thirty-two offences, which included disclosure of confidential information, unlawfully accessing data to obtain benefit, obtaining benefit by deception and stealing. And there were some other charges as now unclear. The police and the DPP won't say whether they'll dropped. And they were of destruction of evidence and attempting to pervert the course of justice. Now, Burridge, as it was charged last September with four alleged crimes, which is conspiracy to pervert the course of justice, attempting to pervert the course of justice, destruction of evidence, and providing a false statement in a statutory declaration. Now, as I said, all three of those are maintaining their ev- uh, innocence and fighting those charges. Another thing to say is before we go into the next story, is that. Um, the, the fuel bladder, like the ATSB ruled out the fact that the fuel had leaked out during the crash and they were sure that the helicopter probably, we thought probably that the helicopter ran out of fuel because, um, because there was a very small amount of fuel left in it and there was no damage to the actual container that held
0: the fuel as well. Hey, Dave, just a quick backup question on that. Is the charge of attempting to pervert the course of justice? Is that like a backup charge in case they can't prove the perverting the course of justice charge? Uh, interesting question. Potentially, he was actually didn't manage to do it. I don't know exactly. That, that's how I read it. It's like, um, yeah. Anyway, we'll see it. See how that pans out. But I just thought maybe that was a backup charge in case the the main one didn't quite fit the bill. Yeah, I like, guess the court cases, is well, isn't no? it?
1: Yeah, well, me attempting to answer that
0: question, I couldn't. Well, yes. yes, so that was that was you attempting to answer it as opposed to answering it. I see what exactly. you're saying. <laughs> um, well, just moving on to the next story, because it's sort of linked very much so. Uh, the police say they've got an expert uh, with opinions about the fuel system and the airworthiness of Wright's crash chopper, Dave.
1: Yeah, yeah this this came into the inboxes this morning the police media Siddha basha our favorite uh government crime spin doctor got up early to um do this and it had all the hallmarks of our uh, hell has no fury like a police commissioner scorned I think <laughs> it I like I asked police sources about it and they you know they their their ideas about Why the police, why, there was no name on this, by the way, it just came from NT Police. It was an NT Police media statement. And uh, I was asking the reasons why this might have come out. And they were, the person I was speaking to was saying, well, does what the ATSB report, does it destroy the premise of uh, some of those charges that the NT Police have laid against some of those men? Now, they The NT police say their investigation file includes evidence of maintenance and fuel records. And so those fuel records, which the ATSB said did not exist, and expert opinions concerning the fuel system and airworthiness of the aircraft and toxicology analysis of individuals involved in the crash. And they said individuals, plural. Um, so... So, yeah, okay, I'll go through that. What else did they say? (laughs) Read into (laughs) that what you will. So it said it shared comprehensive investigation. The police said they'd shared comprehensive investigation file, its comprehensive investigation file, with the Department of Public Prosecutions, WorkSafe NT, the Civil Aviation and Safety Authority, which included maintenance and fuel records, expert opinions concerning the fuel system, and airworthiness of this stricken aircraft and the toxicology analysis. These agencies are currently examining the culpability of individuals with respect to the tragic death of Chris Willow Wilson. And for some reason, they felt compelled to include his nickname in there.
0: Yeah, interesting. seems this, official.
1: This is another – this is the real kicker. This is the sting. Detectives have also provided comprehensive evidence to the, the ATSB to insist with their safety focused investigation. And wow. it's really interesting saying, okay, the detectives provided all this information and then the words safety focused are they trying to either say it's interesting to see what they're trying to say there are they trying to say, don't worry about what ATSB's found because they're just focused on safety. We actually know the real story, like, like we're looking at the criminality of it all. I thought I it sounded like know. we
0: gave them the information, they chose to ignore it and did their own report. It certainly sounded like that when I first read it, uh, <laughs> but uh,
1: we don't want to read too, many, too much into these things. No, but no, that's right. It, uh, it was interesting that they did it, that they put out their release. It was interesting that it didn't come out the same day as the, the ATSB report. Maybe they just thought it would get... Get lost if they release it yesterday, um, or maybe they just—I don't know. Um, so the the person I spoke to said maybe the um, maybe they're reminding the ATSB to don't speak anymore. As your as now, um, yes, there's a swear word in there, but uh, our case—it's so affecting their case. Um, yeah, that uh, is fascinating. You mm. I guess we'll, we'll, find out as more of the evidence is presented against these men about um, as it comes out in court and how it, it um, how it parallels or contrasts with what the ATSB has found, especially around the finding of what happened with the fuel.
0: Yeah, most interesting will be how the DPP handles this one. <laughs> you know, the the way they take this one to court will be interesting.
1: Yeah, and like uh, without preempting anything, like the uh, the uh, I can't remember hearing anything from Worksafe from this. And I'm not saying they haven't done anything, uh, but they haven't been that great in making things stick when they get to court either. Um, the DPP <laughs> right. and the Worksafe. Yeah. So you know, there's been a few uh, Worksafe charges, serious charges that have been dropped or downgraded. Right. Anyway, I think there's there's it's gonna be a lot of very interesting the stuff that comes out here and yep. and how it contrasts with what's been found here.
0: Yeah, either way there's gonna be a lot to go through because uh I think territorians, you know, they they wanna they wanna know what happened here and why. So um when it goes to court I guess more will come to light. Yes. Dave, moving to the next story, uh, a think tank calls for the federal government to stop funding New South Wales and Victoria to the detriment of the NT. Tell us about this. That's right. Like uh, My
1: policy nerd element doesn't come out very often, but I, uh, I was very interested in this story. Yeah. So the Grant Institute produced a report called Potholes and Pitfalls, How to Fix Local Roads. And it said, as you said, New South Wales receives over six times more federal government financial assistance grants per person than remote NT councils, which, which they said, undermines the ability of those to maintain their roads. Now, those financial grants, uh, there's two two different ones. One's a more general one, and one's a road specific thing. But I think you you can spend the more general one on roads. Um, so the the Institute found across Australia, you know, the Great Institute's basically a policy think tank and they found that there was a they estimated there's a billion dollars was needed each year across Australia, each year to keep council maintained roads at the same state they're in today. Now, seventy-seven percent, they said seventy-seven percent of Australia's roads are managed by councils, but in the NT and Tasmania, who have small populations but also have jurisdictions almost entirely made up of regional and remote council roads, Um, they contrasted with the vast majority of people in New South Wales and Victoria and the ACT that live in major cities with very few people living in remote areas. And the gist of it was like some of this is paid on a per capita basis. So a lot of the the councils in Sydney and Melbourne uh, also get a lot more income than the remote councils here do but they And they don't have the same level of roads to maintain because there's, because there's just large, long roads in really remote areas mm. in the Northern Territory. And um, they said this leads to undesirable outcomes. States where a larger share of councils are self-sufficient, have a greater capacity to distribute the grants where they are most needed. Um, and as a result, similar councils in different states end up with varying funding outcomes. Um, But they said that put that $1 billion figure into context saying that it's only about 10% of what the federal government spent on roads last year anyway. And I found the next statement interesting. Taxpayers would get better bang for their buck if the federal government spent an extra billion dollars on improving our local roads rather than new mega mega projects in major cities. And and we both can remember. You know, the amount of money that uh, is getting spent on public transport in or has been spent on public transport in Sydney in the last couple of years and is planned to be spent on Melbourne is uh, is is incredible, really. Yeah. Um and it said taxpayers would get better value if the federal government stopped favoring the densely populated states of New South Wales and Victoria. Yeah. To the detriment of Tasmanian and T and cut back the share of funding, pool it directs to Metropolitan councils that are already self-sufficient. There was one amazing stat here: it said the entire NT receives less funding from the general component of the financial assistance grants than the city of Geelong in Victoria gets in total.
0: Wow! Yeah. Wow. Well, the city of Geelong, population-wise, would be more than the whole of the NT's population. So it's a it's a really it's a very good comparison because it it would be about the same size, but it would be slightly bigger.
1: Geelong would be bigger than the territories' population.
0: Yeah. yep, slightly bigger. It'd be about two hundred and fifty, maybe maybe just over that these days. But that's a a really good comparison. Yeah, well, I find I feel really sorry for the two hundred and fifty thousand people. Then,
1: um, <laughs> yeah, um, we, we all. <laughs> what was I was going to say, um, so we do. We, we do we are critical of the territory government quite rarely but um, there is you know a, an infrastructure deficit that the territory had as a carryover from when it was given self-government as well. And um, if the Grant Institute's saying in this instance we're actually not getting enough funding um, compared to the other states so I found that found that really interesting and then and these roads, like it's not like people in remote areas can just choose another road if you're like, as in, if you're Correct. in Sydney and Melbourne and these, these roads need to be, be around and councils have to be able to like some of these uh, councils are just completely busted ass and to be able to like grade or upgrade um, large roads out in the middle of nowhere is um with such extreme weather as well that, you know, the, the rain washing out roads or flooding is a big
0: onus. It is onerous. It sure is. And and when you consider, it, it's sort of um, staggering that still in this day and age, we have these situations uh, during the wet season each year when they go, oh, yep, there's been a train derailed, so that's going to affect freight for the next two or three weeks or parts of the Stuart highway are underwater, so – that's going to affect freight for the next few weeks, and you know that that's the only road in and out in that regard.
1: Yeah, well, was it last year when
0: the um, Fitzroy Crossing
1: Bridge got destroyed, and then the conversation came up about Catherine and how there's only we only have one road bridge over yeah. Catherine and how dangerous that is. And I, I know Catherine, you know, the the water has to go up fairly high in Catherine to 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 block that bridge.
0: Yeah, but, but it it's has harder. before. It's happened. Yeah. yeah, and it'll it'll happen again. So,
1: so I, yeah. I think this there's one part of this story that I haven't read out yet, which I think may become your your favorite part.
0: Right
1: think The Grattan Institute said it surveyed councils. So it said um it said even if there's extra money and it's better targeted, it won't be enough to fix the problems of local roads. A Grattan Institute survey of councils conducted for this report revealed that an extraordinary number of councils don't even know what roads they manage. A quarter of the councils we surveyed don't know exactly what roads and bridges they manage. For remote councils, it's almost half.
0: That's frightening. I'm just pleased it didn't isolate the, just the Northern Territory in saying those comments. It's every a
1: wonder it didn't say that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm disappointed
1: that it didn't really because it... I would have felt special if it did.
0: It'd be more territorial if it did, that's for sure. But yeah, anyway, I mean, it, it is a really good story. I'm glad that you brought it up because it's one of those ones that, that wouldn't meet the light of day very often, but it's, it's really important because the NT as a whole, we, we get left behind in many regards because we don't shout as loud as everyone else because we just don't have the population.
1: Yeah, and um, I'm probably the only person that actually read that story and uh, you've got a bit of it now as well, so I feel like it's been worthwhile.
0: Thank you. Yep, you've passed on your knowledge. I appreciate it. Uh, Dave, uh, Mandora Jetty, which is something that has been, I, I think I arrived in Darwin just after 2000 and I think Mandora Jetty has been mentioned every year since. <laughs> and uh, the uh, the Mandora Project uh, Jetty Project, Has ballooned from twenty four million to now sixty three million dollars. What on earth is going on? Yeah, it's a bit of splash, isn't it? Okay,
1: it's we we reported this on the day that the the um the tender the contract was announced, and the government took a couple of days. Maybe they announced it the next day or something like that. And I haven't seen any other, you know. I haven't seen any other media outlet report on this. Maybe Channel Nine did. I'm not sure. Um, which is, which is, it's a fairly important piece of infrastructure. But anyway, so the mm-hmm. government, the government. This has been, as you've said, been going on for a very long time. Now, in 2000, it was discussed. The ABC makes reference to it. This new jetty being uh, talked about in 2014, and then they said in 2017 the government. Put a price tag of um twenty four million dollars, twenty four little gunner gunnery dudes to build this thing, and yes. then, and then, in two thousand nineteen, it becomes it becomes a uh, a priority project, and uh, I'd hate to think uh, how long we'd be waiting if it become a priority project. <laughs> so we haven't even got the sucker built yet, um, and it's four and a half years on since when it was. It was fast-tracked, I think, was the term that they were using as well, which I neglected to put in here. <laughs> but anyway, it, 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 it's been through the ring of this thing. So the, the contract has been awarded $63 million to a company called SMC Marine. And so it's a new accessible jetty ferry at Mentora. Um, but this the, the cost of the works also includes dredging works to allow for the ferry access Construction of two breakwaters around the infrastructure. The new jetty is necessarily the new jetty is also necessary, no one else has ever reported this. The defile government to allow the files government to adhere to federal public transport accessibility legislation that came into effect at the start of the year but has had a 20 year lead time. Yeah. And to be fair, the territory government is not the only uh, jurisdiction that is failing badly in this. And, no, of course, memory, the. The federal government doesn't even have a list of all the uh, all the public transport that doesn't meet their accessibility requirements. Mm. So this is so people in wheelchairs or or older people can can easily board this ferry. Yeah. Um. And they haven't been able to, and it's had great ramifications because there's no health clinic out at um out out there, and there's no you know the supermarkets don't hope deliver, and people are having to. And there's less helicopters
0: get, available these yes. days. To you know get you into town, yeah.
1: so people are having to get taxis into town for medical appointments and buy food and stuff if they can't get on the 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 ferry um and to 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 be slightly fair to the government in two thousand and nineteen when they um when they released the contract and they said then it was going to cost fifty million dollars with the the original design was uh, tender was to be finished in February two thousand and nineteen. The design contract was to be awarded in April. The construction tender was to be released in May 2020, and the jetty finished by May 2022. But there was a little bit of um. You know, the fishermen complained about it, so now it has like now it has a boat ramp, single lane boat ramp in it as yeah. well. And um, so part of the cost was because the fishers got a bit sooky about it. So, it's also going to have a gangway and a pontoon and just disability access and a a car park and a ferry passage and more jet ski, um, tie up, skiing. Yeah, yeah. it's going to have an infinity pool. Um, (laughs) As you would. (laughs) So, the government also at one point has has tried to blame COVID, saying it had put several restrictions on how this industry collaboration will, will occur to optimize the design. And uh, I would have thought they could all use a bit of um, what is this we're using now? Some sort of like you know some sort of internet system where you can talk to each other yes. and talk about designs. Yeah. Anyway, yes. that uh, that reeked of being nonsense, but um, but they did put it out to tender last year, and they didn't get anyone. From memory. Oh, really? And then they, yeah they yeah, so that's why they had to put it out for tender again. Right. So, she's been a saga, I think, is yeah. what you could say.
0: Yeah, yeah. But now that the infinity oh. pool's there, it's all good.
1: <laughs> exactly. She did say, actually, um, they didn't select a tenderer, successful tenderer in the uh, tender that closed mid-2022, mid-last year, due to cost challenges brought about by uncertain market conditions. So... Obviously, they just thought, "Screw that." We're we're going to award it anyway because they went from fifty million dollars to sixty-three million dollars. So, um, so I
0: guess the cost challenges don't matter anymore. Well, Dave, as I was once told by a now senior member of the current uh, NT government, money is cheap. So you know, <laughs> that's despite thirteen interest rate rises since then. Money's not so cheap anymore.
1: Yeah, well, having said that, I think perhaps they should have fireworks when the last ferry leaves for the night, every night as well.
0: Make it special. Uh, It'd be unterritorial not to. Exactly. Nightly fireworks off by the jetty. Knowing our luck, someone will burn it down in the first week. (laughs) Um, Let's look at another story now. uh, Just continuing on when it comes to exorbitant costs. Uh, Virgin uh, to open flights to Uluru as the exorbitant airfares from Darwin continue.
1: Yes, so Virgin have announced from June next year they're going to do direct flights from Uluru to Melbourne and Uluru to uh, Brisbane, and I think you know they did a bit they did their little sale and um, they're all very affordable flights right at the minute. So they're going to have they said they're going to have an additional sixty two thousand seats. For, for both those leg, those routes, as part of the territory government's um, aviation attraction scheme, uh, which you would remember from previous movies as Bonza Airlines. Bonza, Bonza Airlines take to Darwin. Yep. Um, now, obviously, the government uh, is not going to tell anyone how much <laughs> it actually costs to get Birch to fly to Uluru because that's. Why would we ever know how the government? No. Why would we ever need to know how the government's spending That's our money? Top secret.
0: But listen, um, the message is in the name: the government attraction scheme. <laughs>
1: <laughs> government attracts virgins. That's what the old yeah. NT News. <laughs> ah. <laughs> government attracts virgins. And NT News would have done that years ago, <laughs> earlier this. But earlier to, to contextualise this, earlier this year, Virgin reduced its Darwin city capacity by fifty three percent from its two thousand nineteen capacity and sitting capacity since Australia by 74% and scrapped and Darwin a Sydney flight. Um, so, and talking about the exorbitant air, air fares, and the NT News actually did a good story on this a couple of weeks ago about um, the cost of flying from Darwin to anywhere else, and I'm not sure about the cost of flying from Alice Springs to anywhere else, but, but uh, I know looking at flights recently, it was going to cost – twenty two hundred dollars to fly from here to sydney return and you could fly sydney to london return for 1500 bucks and i see yeah. in this story that terms um, quoting that some options are three thousand dollars each way uh each way from darwin to to melbourne or sydney and i i think i did see a flight where they're asking Five thousand dollars return, but you it wasn't direct from Darwin to Melbourne. Like you had to right. stop somewhere for eight yeah, hours. Or like that.
0: Yeah, I love yeah. the airfares that look cheap, but then you realise it's a twenty-two hour flight from <laughs> yeah. Darwin to Melbourne or well, Sydney. Yeah, you have to you fly
1: by Wellington or something. Yeah. yeah,
0: I do know of a, a family, Dave, that uh, recently got a quote for flights from Brisbane to Darwin, Darwin to Brisbane, uh, with Virgin. It was $12,500 and uh, 2500 with Bonza. So you can imagine the option they took.
1: Yeah. I think Wowee fits that.
0: Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it?
1: Um, General Rutchford, who's the Tourism Central Australia Chief Executive, said uh, – <laughs> strangely, he said Uluru flights would mean more visitors. No, he said more flights uh, to Uluru would mean more people going to Dallas Springs as well because – he said uh, there were open jaw travel, which was once again a bit like hot refueling. I had no idea what it means. But <laughs> he said, Ugh. "Do you want to step in?" No, <laughs> I'll leave that one. But the answer is actually here anyway, so it's all right. He said it would that allow tourists to hire a car in Uluru and fly out of Alice Springs instead. But um with what we're seeing with the summer of files on at the minute uh, with the crime <laughs> the springs maybe mm. people uh, maybe not going to be that keen but it is a uh, it is a great thing that uh, there are more flights into the Northern Territory if um even if it's only
0: to Uluru that's true the only thing I would say in rebutting that statement is that more higher cars Dave means more higher cars stolen Oh, that's just so deflating, isn't it? It is, but unfortunately it's it's the way it is right now and the Summer of Files will, um, will be known for all of those sorts of things. I'm really pleased for the extra flights coming in, but I just hope it doesn't mean more people leave the NT saying, well, I'm never going back there again.
1: Maybe with the Summer of Files we could learn from what we're doing with the Mandora Ferry and after the last car is stolen each night we could have some fireworks.
0: <laughs> the last thief can let them all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Put them in a uh, central location, so they don't know where they are. Exactly. Anyway, sorry to the people of Alice rings
0: No, don't no. Need to make and we, light of your situation. We, but we have said this so many times now that um, the laughter is so we don't cry. So it's not because we're making fun of Alice Springs. It's more the situation and the farcical nature that we find ourselves in with the you know latest police plan of how they're going to fix things and stuff like that. That's well, um, where the laughter comes from.
1: Well, Darwin itself is getting a bit ram of late as well. So those That's in glass true. houses
0: shouldn't hold monster truck rallies, Pete. That's it. It knows no boundaries. It's not just Alice Springs. It's everywhere.
1: We're in, we're in inclusive jurisdiction.
0: We are. Dave, just hold there for me, mate. The most anticipated segment of the week is coming up next. And now, it's time for the Job Files, thanks to no one in particular. And yes, Dave, as I promised, the Job Files Job of the Week, which uh, Chris just worked out Job Files is spelled F-Y-L-E-S about a week ago. I've only been running it for two years, but anyway. This week's Job Files Job of the Week is looking for a Senior Prevention and Engagement Officer. The Office of the Independent Commissioner Against Corruption of the Northern Territory is seeking a person that will sit in an Administrative Officer 7 role, package range, $130,333 to $140,092. It's a fixed time, sorry, it's a fixed full-time vacancy Available for 12 months. The senior, sorry. sorry, Dave? What did you say that title was again? The title is the Senior Prevention and Engagement Officer. What does that even mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Senior Engagement and Prevention Officer is responsible for the delivery of prevention and engagement activities to prevent and minimize the occurrence of improper conduct. Increase okay. awareness of the Office of Independent Commissioner against corruption, role and functions, develop educational material and foster a proactive culture of reporting. Some would say that is called lagging. Enhance whistleblower protections and build confidence in public administration. Jeez, before you said the word
1: corruption, I thought they were just employing someone to hand out condoms or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it had a feel of <laughs> someone handing out ICAC flyers to it. That's for sure. Oh, ICAC condoms would be a good thing. ICAC um, condoms prevention on multiple levels. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um. Having talking about ICAC briefly, he put out mm. a statement today about um, about whistleblower protections and the new adhering to the new legislation and educating. And um, uh, have you ever seen uh, that Simpsons episode where where Bart overtakes Camp Krusty and Homer's <laughs> sitting in the television going, and they're going, we're going to cross to the ringleader now. <laughs> don't be the boy. Don't be the boy. Well, I opened up this email and he said there was education videos made about uh, educating people about whistleblowers. And I'm thinking, don't be Michael Riches. Don't be Michael Riches. <laughs> and I opened up the video and there is Michael Riches like, doing his own education Richard. videos for everyone going, do, do you not have anything better to do than like? Why aren't you getting your engagement and prevention when they're not handing out their condoms? They could be making these little information videos. But anyway, you
0: know why? Because the person isn't in a role yet. But in I've, in the short distance, they might be.
1: I found it very strange that the the corruption commissioner was making his own little videos, instructional videos. I I hope he puts them on YouTube so they can Please be watched. Send the, the, the whole world can watch
0: because they'll definitely be going on our Facebook page. I think oh. it's important we spread the word against corruption, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And um, just lastly on this job, if you're interested in applying for that, you can contact the Director of Prevention and Engagement. That's Stephanie Hawkins. Her number is 8999-4019, or you can email her, stephanie.hawkins at icac.nt.gov.au, and her name is spelt normally. There's no double F, double P, double H, or anything else that you might expect from one of these new age names that have destroyed the English name belt. Wow, well, it's a lot I made to take that word out. up, but uh, I quite yeah. like it.
1: Well, um, I'm very glad that she's got a safe name. I'm. I Love was it. thinking of expanding a theme and uh, to make all corruption more visible and uh, corruption fighting more visible. That every time the uh, ICAC put out a report, they could we could release fireworks as well from their building,
0: but. Um, <laughs> But, you just, uh, just want to make July 1 every day of the year.
1: Well, I was going to say, but um, we wouldn't actually have to go through many fireworks, would we?
0: Not of late, no, no. It's more about just, you know, talking to people nicely and explaining, maybe handing a pamphlet or two and just explaining it, what it's like to do things the right way.
1: Make a YouTube video. Hicks should start doing reaction videos on YouTube as well. Maybe an unboxing
0: video or two.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I see a big
0: future for this, man. <laughs> you never know you're like. Dave, it's been a pleasure, mate. I uh, thank you for joining me on the weekend edition and I look forward to the next time we reconvene on another podcast. I too look forward to this, Pete. That was David Wood from the NT Independent Online newspaper. Weekends with Walshie back again next week. You have yourself a great week in the meantime and we'll catch you then. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition with Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. For more episodes, go to all your favorite podcasting platforms or head to TerritoryStory.com.